All right. So I'm, oops, there we go. I'm going to talk to you about remembering to remember. So I'm going to talk to you about the ability to remember to do things in the future. I'm going to go through a whole bunch of studies very briefly. I'm happy to talk to anybody in more detail about any of them. I'm going to focus just on the work in our lab on prospective memory, and I'm going to focus just on the last couple of years. But I'm happy to take any questions or talk to you another time um, if you're interested more. So prospective memory, as I said, is the ability to remember to do things in the future. It can be time-based. So I'd like all of you to remember at 1.15 to please raise your hand. Okay, take a second to look at your watches. Or it can be event-based. That is, there can be a cue reminding you to do something, like an alarm going off telling you to take the roast out of the oven. What I'd like you to do is to remember that if you see a picture of a jazz band, I'd like you to applaud. <coughs> okay? Um, and there always has to be an ongoing task. So it's not considered a prospective memory task if you're just sitting and staring at the clock and waiting for it to be 1.15. You always have to be doing something else at the same time. So when we design studies of prospective memory, we have to be really careful about what kind of ongoing task that we use. Why do we care about prospective memory? Why does it matter? It matters because if you ask people with illnesses like traumatic brain injury or Alzheimer's disease, they will tell you that this is the thing that interferes with their life the most. So while most cognitive studies look at people's ability to remember what happened yesterday, that actually doesn't interfere with your daily functioning nearly as much. I can attest to this because I have a terrible memory. It doesn't interfere nearly as much as forgetting to get things done, right? So you can think about that in your own lives, and it is what gets reported repeatedly. And it can interfere with really um, important things like going to medical appointments or taking your medicine and have very serious consequences if you forget what you were supposed to do. <laughs> We started to look a little bit about the brain regions being mediated by, uh, that are mediate prospective memory. A lot of this work has been done by West and a couple of other labs, but actually surprisingly few labs have looked at this. This is work that we did with Burgess and also with Mike Stevens over at the Institute of Living. And the area that we've come up with so far is rostral prefrontal cortex for that piece that's involved in remembering the intention, actually doing the thing you were supposed to do. Obviously, prospective memory involves lots of other functions, but for that piece of it, it looks like it's Brodmann's Area 10, for those of you that love Brodmann's areas, and who doesn't, after all. <laughs> We've also looked, also copying some of West's work. This was Navneet Kerr's um, senior thesis in 2013. Consuelo Pedro was working very hard on this as we speak, trying to come up with um, event-related potential measures of all the different pieces of prospective memory. So while we now think that Brodmann's Area 10, or rostral prefrontal cortex, is important in the bringing the intention to mind part, we're trying to now separate out different parts of the brain that are responsible for different um, aspects of getting a task done. In Navneet's thesis, she compared healthy adults to individuals who had traumatic brain injury. And what this is showing is, so ONG means the ongoing task, so the thing they were doing to distract them from the task was not significantly different between the groups, but if you look at, these are just four electrodes um, of interest to us for the prospective memory task, and here we did find differences. This is the amplitude of the um, activation in those electrodes while the person was doing the task. And as I said, Consuelo's con continuing to do this work. 
The other thing that we did in my lab a few years back was invent a measure of prospective memory because there wasn't really one that existed at the time. Ours is called the MIST, the Memory for Intentions test. I know, I wanted the prospective memory screen, but nobody else wanted the PMS test to be what our lab was famous for. So we went with the MIST until Stephen King used it, and then that really messed us up. The MIST has two different time delays, a two-minute delay and a 15-minute delay, so that we can look at short periods of time to remember and long periods of time to remember. Two different queue types, an event type, when I give you a piece of paper that says request for records, or a time in exactly two minutes. It also has two types of responses, a response that requires a physical action. For example, write down the name of your doctor, or a response that's purely verbal. For example, remind me to tell you when your next appointment is. We were really excited about this action verbal thing, and it's been a total bust. The reason, <laughs> the reason we were excited is because in healthy adults like all of you, you're better at remembering to do something if it's an action than if it's verbal. This has been shown over and over again, this action superiority effect. In fact, keep this in mind, you're better if you even if you never perform the action if you thought you were going to. So if I say to you, in 20 minutes, I want you to clap your hands, you'll remember that better even if I never make you clap your hands. Even if in 20 minutes I say, what were you supposed to do? You'll remember it better because it was an action. There's lots of theories for why this is about subcortical loops, and I can talk about them if someone's interested. I thought, cool, we can use this to rehabilitate people with brain damage. We'll just make sure they do everything in actions. You'll see in a minute, it's completely useless in that purpose. But Anyway, our ongoing task is a word search puzzle. I know you all know what word search puzzles are. They have to sit and do this, and we thought that this was distracting enough and engaging enough and interesting enough to keep them going. We have recognition trials, so that if somebody forgets to do the task, we can say, well, what were you supposed to do? Was it A, B, or C? And we can see if they can remember that well enough. We have a 24-hour probe because, in reality, most of the things that you have to remember are longer than 15 minutes from now. And so we have this. They have to call the lab phone in 24 hours. If anybody's taken the mist, of course, this is complete deception. We tell you that we want to know how many hours you slept because this is a tiring test. We couldn't care less how many hours you slept. We just want to know if you remember to call this the phone in 24 hours. And because of the time tag on our voicemail, we know how close you got to getting it right. So this is our attempt to have a task that's a little bit more naturalistic, a little closer to what you would do in real life. We can code all different kinds of errors. But for today, I'm just going to focus on what we call prospective memory failure. The literature argues about this a little bit, but we're sticking to our guns and calling it a prospective memory failure. And that's if the person does nothing, shows no recognition that they were supposed to do something. You with me so far? OK, good. This test has good psychometric properties. I'm not going to go into detail about the studies that have looked at it. Um, one was in our lab, or two were in our lab, one of which with Elon Jones, Ginger Mills, um, Ethiopia Kabtamer and Marta Zemrazarik. Um, I'm going to try to point out the students on each of these studies as I go through. So these were students here and also in another lab, which is always good news when somebody else finds that your task is effective. Um, so it has good validity, which means it's good at measuring what we think it's measuring. It has good reliability, which means it keeps measuring the same thing over and over again correctly. So that's what you want um, in terms of psychometric studies. What I'm going to whiz through at lightning speed is a series of studies that we've done just showing you the kinds of questions that you can ask when you're thinking about prospective memory and all the different ways that it can affect different kinds of people in their lives. So one of the first series of studies we did was on healthy aging. 
the questions that we were interested in is, at what point does performance decline? What about the aging paradox, which I'll explain in a second? And what's the relationship between decline in prospective memory and um, dementia? Because prospective memory decline seems to be a very early marker, and we think might predict the onset of dementia in people who don't have it. This is work that Dave Carell worked on, and Damien um, DeCura and Colin McEachin, and it's still ongoing in the lab. We don't have enough data to publish it yet, but it has been presented at a couple of conferences. And this is just showing you what people experience, the difference between retrospective and prospective memory. So what's the paradox? The paradox is that in the laboratory, on laboratory-based measures, young people do better than old people. No big surprise, young people do better than old people on everything, so nobody cares. <laughs> on naturalistic tasks, like get these things done in the next week in your, on your own time in your own way, older people do better than younger people. The same or sometimes even better. So people are confused by this. Now there's lots of possible explanations that have nothing to do with brain function, like young people have more things to remember, or old people care more about proving that their memory isn't impaired. Um, <laughs> but one explanation is that laboratory tasks require greater cognitive control. And there's some evidence that this is due to that rostral prefrontal cortex area that I showed you that we came up with before. So this suggests that on a task like our MIST, they should do worse on the time-based than on the event-based. You'll see by the end of this task, when you've completed some tasks, time-based is harder than event-based. So this is just, we would had three groups, one 20 to 30, 40 to 50, and 60 to 70. So here's what we found just in this preliminary data. By age 60, they're already significantly worse, even on a two-minute queue. By age 40, they're already significantly worse on the 15-minute queue. So there are dramatic declines in prospective memory ability that happen. These are healthy people. These are maybe some of you in the room. These are, <laughs> these are people with no diagnosis of any kind of disease process. Now looking at our question about whether time would be worse than event, we did find that for event-based cues, there was no difference between the groups, even up to the 70-year-olds. But for the time-based cues, there was a big drop-off. So we did find what we were looking for, that on time-based cues, age has a big effect. On event-based cues, it doesn't. Here's our naturalistic task, our 24-hour task. These are not significantly different, but just the fact that they're not worse on it is consistent with the literature and interesting to us in terms of this age paradox question. This is something I want you to keep in mind as we move forward. So um, what I have here in green is, so this is young, middle-aged, old, and then brain-injured. So brain-injured people make these kinds of errors, the do-nothing errors. This is not what happens as you age. Something else is happening as you age. Because what people make as they age are these kind of doing the wrong thing, knowing they were supposed to do something but doing not the right thing. Okay? So that's a different kind of process cognitively and probably mediated by different regions of the brain and something that we really want to look into in more detail about what the difference is between these groups and other groups as well, how they do. So that's one of the nice things about the MIST. So we took a bunch of people and gave them a MIST and they were all healthy. And we separated them into who did less than 30 and, bigger and better than 30 on the MIST. And then a year later we went back to the senior center where they were residing and just um, looked at who had been diagnosed with dementia and who hadn't. And what we found was that people who scored less than 30 on the MIST a year earlier when they were considered healthy had significantly higher rates of being diagnosed with dementia a year later. 
So, you know, this is just, I'll say this a lot today, but this is just one thing that we're hoping that clinicians will think about as they're working with people who are beginning to show signs of age-associated memory impairment, that prospective memory might be a really good marker to know who are the people you need to look out for. All right, I'm going to switch unless, well, I'll take questions at the end of this. Yes, go ahead. Oh, <laughs> see, it's 1.15. Nicely done. You jumped the gun. People are complaining. You were too early. Okay, so um, I'm going to switch gears now to individuals with um, schizophrenia. Again, we were interested in time-based versus event-based prospective memory. But in this population, yes, you can still do it if your clock hasn't said 115 yet. Um, <laughs> you guys are great. Um, but in this population, we were particularly interested in the question of medication adherence. People with schizophrenia often don't take their meds, and there's lots of reasons that are given why, like they don't like the side effects or they think they're fine. You know, once you're good, you don't want to take them anymore. And we thought some of them are not taking their meds because they can't remember to. And that's not something that people were really looking at. So this is a study that was just published this year with Jackie May, Alex Rogers, Dave Carell, and Marta Zimrazowicz. We gave them the mist. We gave them a measure of how well they remember to take their meds. And we gave them a virtual reality apartment in which they had to take their meds that was designed by Robert Astor over at the, when he was at the Institute of Living. He's at UConn now. And the test of medication management was just a role play. They had some... They weren't real pills, fake pills in front of them, and we told them different directions for when they had to take them. And the same thing in the apartment. Um, the apartment looked like this. These are just screenshots of four of the rooms in the apartment. The pills were in the bathroom. There was a reminder on the refrigerator. They sat and watched Finding Nemo on the TV. That was their ongoing task. And this is just the people, what they look like if anybody's interested in their schizophrenia symptoms. So it turns out they were bad at everything. Um, significantly worse on the MIST, on the medication test, and on the virtual reality test. If you look at the MIST more specifically, you do get, so they were significantly worse in both time and event, but they were more worse for time than they were for event. They were significantly worse for the 15 minute, but they were actually okay at the two minute. And so this is again something, if you can get somebody trained to use a date book or a reminder, you know that their two-minute prospective memory is okay. You know that you can sort of at least get them to compensate a little bit. And here's the errors. Like the brain-damaged people, people with schizophrenia are showing those do-nothing errors. Most importantly, we got a really nice significant relationship between the MIST and medication adherence. So their performance on the MIST predicted whether they would remember successfully to take their medication. So again, this is something we can tell clinicians, you know, if you're worried that somebody may have difficulty taking their medications, test their prospective memory. Um, and unfortunately, the virtual reality apartment was a bust. It looks cool and all, but um, it didn't turn out to be very effective in terms of the data that we got. But Robert's working on coming up with something better for us. And, and actually, um, AJ in our lab is also trying to design a computerized task that we can use. So that's a handsome guitar player, don't you think? <laughs> um, <laughs> so, so was the event-based task easier than the time-based task? Yeah. Okay, it should be. So I'm going to briefly talk about Parkinson's. This is work that started out as Jim Sethna's um, senior thesis. So given damage to dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, which we know is what happens in Parkinson's disease, do they have specific time-based deficits? 
The other thing is that people with Parkinson's have bad time sense. We've shown over and over again they have a really bad ability to say how much time has passed. They can't judge the passage of time. And so does that affect their prospective memory? Is that something leading to trouble remembering to get things done when you need to get them done? This is just what they look like. And so I just want to show you here, we did find that time-based was much worse than event-based. So the differences between the groups was much greater for time-based than it was for event-based. But here, while they did show those no response errors, they also showed lots of those other kinds of errors that the aging people showed. Now, Parkinson's are older, so maybe there's an additional aging process going on, but maybe also there's something else going on. The reason they have dorsolateral prefrontal damage is because of um, bad chemical loops to their subcortical structures. That's different from someone with brain injury who gets whacked in their frontal cortex. So it's very possible that we're looking at two different kinds of processes happening. I'm going to move now to the alcohol college students because I know you all are curious, not about yourselves, but the people you know who drink who are in college. And we looked at two different things. One is drinking behavior, that is how much do you drink and do you binge? And the other is um, what we call negative drinking outcomes, and the one that we picked to look at is blackouts. This is a paper that was Marta Zimrazovich's senior thesis and is in press right now in neuropsychology. <clears throat> Why did we care about college students and alcohol? Well, prospective memory is that rostral prefrontal cortex, which is uniquely vulnerable to the effects of alcohol and is still developing in adolescence. And because it's still developing, it's even more vulnerable in these um, students. That was about the binge drinking. Now, it turns out that blackouts are probably related to hippocampal function. It's complicated, and I, and I can talk about it if people are interested. But the hippocampus is also vulnerable to the effects of alcohol, not developing in the same way in adolescence, but it's interesting what it's doing. What's interesting to me is that blackouts and binging don't necessarily go together. So you can binge without blackouts. You can blackout without binges. But bear in mind, if you binge, you're hurting your frontal lobes. If you're blacking out, you're hurting your hippocampus. So just keep that in mind as you go through the weekend. This was a subsample of the BARC study. It was only 372 participants out of the thousands that went through the BARCs. Anybody here go through BARCs? Just one. All right. Phew. Thank you. <laughs> and this will be your brain on alcohol. Um, we only did a subsample, and we couldn't do the full mist, which takes almost half an hour, because it was part of the huge barks thing, which is, you know, if you did it, it takes a long time. So these are the tasks that we did. Our time-based task was to re record a survey question after 15 minutes. And our event-based task, we told them that um, you wouldn't get paid if you didn't give us a cash voucher after a particular item on a co computerized task. The way that we classified the groups, non-drinkers were people who said they have never, ever consumed any alcohol. Light drinkers are sort of social drinkers. As compared to heavy drinkers who binge or meet the criteria for alcohol use disorder or drink more than 50% of the weeks in the preceding six months. Okay? So that's how we separated out um, the college students. These are all Trinity students. Here's what their behavior looked like. So non-drinkers are in blue, light drinkers are orange, and heavy drinkers are in green. And this is just how much they drank, how much they binged. The blackout, I know you're wondering, how did they blackout when they didn't drink? It's because on the blackout um, questionnaire that we used, one equals never. Okay. So um, this is blackouts in the past 30 days, and this is the most drinks they've consumed in 24 hours in the last six months. Okay. So that's what our three groups look like. This is the time-based task and the event-based task. And so you can see this drinking behavior 
was significantly different, where the heavy drinkers are showing impaired time-based prospective memory, but not event-based. So if you're a heavy drinker, rely on event-based tasks. Give yourself cues. Whereas blackouts correlated with event-based, but not time-based. So this is how many, what percent you got correct on the event-based task, plotted against the number of blackouts you've had in the last month. Okay, so we got a really nice distinction between the two. And I can talk to you about our theories of why there's different brain regions and what we think is separating out these two functions, but I think nobody's ever looked at that before, and I think it'll be really interesting for us moving forward. In fact, um, Charmi's doing a study right now where she's giving the full mist and asking people about their alcohol behavior. If you haven't participated, please do. You can talk to her. Um, so that we can get a lot more data than those li two little tasks that we gave. The last study that I'm going to talk to you about is with people with traumatic brain injury, and this is sort of the, one of the main focuses of our lab. And one of the things that we're interested in is whether we could treat prospective memory. Can we make it better? So once we know what's wrong with them, can we do any things to help them um, make it better? And this is a study that was published in 2012 with Amanda Waxman. It was her senior thesis. This is just what the groups look like. So basically, the bottom line is people with brain injury do bad on everything. So every single thing is bad. So um, there's no action superiority effect. We can't make them better by making it actions. They're still impaired even when it's actions. They're impaired even at two minutes. They're impaired even with event-based cues. Um, and when you look at the kind of errors they make again, it's all these absolutely forgetting to ever do anything, that they were ever supposed to do anything at all. So when people talk about rehabilitating these people, most of the time they use compensatory devices. So things like programming everything. There's a great thing in England. We could never do it here. But they have a national health service. And so there's this central location. And if you have brain damage, you can call them and say, here's all the things I have to remember to do this week. They plug it into this central computer. It's probably an extreme computer. And then the person wears a pager called NeuroPage, and they get a page telling them what they have to do. So it's incredible. Can you imagine doing that here? We're just too big. But, um, but that doesn't make their memory better, right? It doesn't make their memories not any better for having wearing this pager. So what we wanted to do was come up with studies where we actually made their memory better, where we actually changed the way their brain was functioning. Um, so we published one study in 2009 with McKay Solberg, and then this one was with um, Marta again, Ginger Mills, Dave Carell, and Michael Smith. So this is an example of a compensatory device, right? It's effective if you're in that specific space, but if you're somewhere else, you're not going to remember to do what you're supposed to do. Right? So in a chapter with Ginger Mills and Julianne Garbarino, we summarized everything that we know about experience-based brain plasticity. What is it that makes the brain change if you're doing something in your daily life? What kinds of things do you need to do in order to ensure change in the brain? And these were the things that we came up with. Um, so, you know, this just means make it something you want to do, that you get something good out of, so it's reinforcing and you want to do it again. And this means start from the beginning saying, how is this going to work in their daily life every day? Not just in the lab, not just on the task we're giving them, but how are we going to ensure this is going to happen in their daily lives? Um, and, so, and this is work that actually Alexis Benedetto was working on natural action tasks and trying to get us to see more about what, how prospective memory works in people getting tasks done in their daily lives. This was an A-B crossover design, so there was A means we think this will help you, B means no way this is going to help you, it's like a control condition, um, 
we looked at them, we gave them all these tests pre-treatment, we gave them an EEG and the MIST and generalization tests. We gave them the MIST in between, we gave them everything post, and we gave them everything a year later, because what's the point of doing it if it doesn't stick, right? If they, they don't keep the, maintain the gains, then it's been a waste of time. The generalization measure was just telling them to do 10 things that they needed to get done in the next week in their daily life. So this is how they did calling our voicemail every day. You can see that they improved on that. And this is their performance. We'll just look at the MIST right now. So these are normal controls just to make sure there's not a practice effect of taking the MIST again. This is how they were post-treatment. This is how they were pre-treatment. And this is a year later. So the red is a year later. So they got better without any treatment from us in the year in between when we last saw them and we brought them back in for retesting. You following that? I think that's really cool. I have some ideas about why that is, but if you guys have some ideas, I'm open because I just think it's phenomenal. I'm excited about it. We've actually brought them in for another year later, and I haven't looked at that data yet, but I'm excited to. And this is how they did on some generalization measures, including the diary study. And again, a year later, they actually improved compared to how they were when they last saw us, when they last came in to see us. Um, this is work from our old EEG looking at um, the P300 waveform, which is a waveform that we think is related to prospective memory. This is pretreatment. This is post-treatment. So this is not normal. This should be a very sharp spike, but it sure looks a lot better than this does. So we're hoping that what we're doing is actually changing the organization of the brain, making this something that the brain gives more attention to and recruits more processing to. So individuals with brain injury improved on our task. The treatment gains were reflected in measures in their daily life and were maintained one year after treatment concluded. So hopefully we'll move to a time when we can do prospective memory training that's more effective than this form. So we're running an fMRI study right now with Mike Stevens at the Institute of Living. We're doing Consuelo Pedro and um, Tessa and Aaron are doing electrophysiological measures. Alexis is comparing to naturalistic actions. Emily Aiken is going to do um, more work on rehabilitation, looking at some more targeted um, treatment options that people have found are helpful, which I can talk about if people are interested around visualization and goal management training. Um, the MIST has now been translated into each of these languages, so we could maybe do some cross-cultural studies. Um, Valerie Velez in my lab is doing the Spanish MIST and looking at that compared to the English MIST to see if there are differences. Ginger and Julianne are just about to publish the MISTI for kids, so that's MIST youth, MISTI. Um, we were going to do the C MIST, but someone else stole it. And uh, we're also working, Connie Kai is working on um, a short form of the MIST. So that is what we're doing. Thank you. <laughs>